This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. Today's the day Texas lifts the coronavirus restrictions. No more mask mandates, no restrictions on capacity at businesses, full concerts, movie theaters, bars, clubs, whatever. Businesses still have the ability to require masks and other safety measures. How's that going to go? New research shows just how dangerous that British variant of the virus really is. We've talked about vaccine distribution and uh, shortfalls. That could change soon. Has anyone seen the flu? Where did it go? We're going to try to find out. And a website looks to make sure no vaccines go to waste. But is it fair? Let's start with Texas lifting its COVID restrictions. Ziggy Gruber is the owner of Kenny and Ziggy's New York Delicatessen in Houston. Ziggy, what's happening today? Well, uh, I mean, you know, as you know, the, the, the governor has told us that there's no masks and that we are allowed to uh, basically have 100 percent capacity, which we thought was a little uh, ludicrous because we are actually doing well in Texas and we are on the right path. But we should do it more in steps rather than just trying to rip the Band-Aid off. I mean, um, not everybody is vaccinated. I think only about five or seven percent of our population is. I mean, when when we're at 50 to 60 percent, maybe that that's time to talk about taking the mask off. But for me, for my customers and for my employees, we only feel safe uh, if we continue using the same protocols that we've been using, which is we're doing 50 percent in the dining with six feet uh, distancing. And we are still going to continue to uh, basically take people's temperature before they enter our establishment, as well as we will continue to have people wear masks, as well as our employees will, will wear masks, as well as be uh, covered with uh, gloves and everything and everything that they do. Do you have any worries that now you guys, your employees, have to be the mask police instead of you know being able to point to the government and say, they say you have to, because now, now it's the argument inside your place of business. Well, yeah, I mean, it makes us more more difficult and they, they, they've taken and put the onus on us now, which I don't think is right. Um, uh, and, and the reason, in my opinion, why the governor did that was to deflect uh, his ineptness of uh, how he handled our big freeze over here, which uh, we really had a hard time over here where we'll People, we lost electricity for three days and people were, you know, we were in like 10 to 17 degree weather, which should have never happened. It would have never happened up north, being from New York originally. And and it was just absolutely insane. And he's trying to use this as a diversionary tactic uh, to uh, to hopefully, uh, you know, take people's minds off of things. So, and Ziggy, I, Ziggy I'm, I'm curious, in your own personal life, I mean, we're talking about your business, but in your personal life now, uh, do you feel comfortable with the state of Texas, where you, of course, are now at, uh, open for all intents and purposes? Do you feel comfortable going with your family to, I don't know, see a movie or go to another restaurant uh, and eat indoors? Would you feel comfortable doing that now? I, I feel I would feel comfortable going into another restaurant if it was a restaurant that I was familiar with that are 
continuing doing what we're doing, and that is having the distancing, the um, mask protocols, and also uh, continuing to do other the other health and safety um, protocols. If that's all being done like it was before, yes, I would go in. I don't know if I would go into a movie at this time. I know people in California don't want to hear that. My brother lives out there <laughs> and he's be in the entertainment business. New research finds the UK variant is much deadlier than the original virus. Scientists have said the variant is also much more contagious. Scientists in the U.S. say it could become dominant here during the spring. Dr. Robert Challen, infectious disease modeler at the University of Exeter in the U.K., co-author of the study. So, doctor, how much deadlier are we talking? So the new uh, the B117 Kent variant is somewhere between 30% higher best case and 100% higher worst case uh, in terms of deaths for the new variant versus previous variants. Well, that, that I think understandably sounds very scary. Uh, if it's 100% more deadly, uh, how, does, how is that playing out in the real world? Well, um, it's difficult to be really clear. And one of the problems we had conducting this study and why those those um, estimates are so wide is that there's a lot else going on at the moment in terms of vaccine rollout, in terms of um, people being told to stay at home, the schools being shut, and all of that has affected how easy it is to see what the outcome is for the for the new variant. Um, so I think, you know, for young people, it's still a low absolute risk, but uh, there is an increase. Do we know why or what happens over the course of infection that makes this worse for you? Uh, I don't think anyone's got a clear picture at the moment. There's some suggestion actually out of work coming out of the U.S. that um, in basketball players that there's longer duration of infection um, or that the virus sticks around for longer in your body. Um it's really not totally clear whether that translates to you being infectious for longer. Um, but that's one of the things that we did find is that you, you know, people seem to survive or behave exactly the same for the first couple of weeks and then not get better uh, in the second couple of weeks. What is the efficacy of the currently available vaccines? And in your country, you got, what, the Pfizer and AstraZeneca. Here we've got uh, Moderna, uh, Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson. Maybe you've got the Johnson & Johnson there, too. Are, are I think all, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Are all these vaccines uh, effective? Effective against the uh, B117 variant? Yeah. Is that, um, uh, my understanding, I'm not the expert on this, but my understanding is that they're all effective. Um, the key question is whether they modify the death uh, rather than being able to pass on infection. I think the, the, the biggest change is, is whether or not you're still infectious uh, but have a mild disease. I think we're looking at, at uh, the case that um, although it may be a little less effective at, at, at preventing you passing on disease, it's still effective uh, at uh, preventing serious disease. So how much uh, does this or does this not change your overall calculus? Because you're supposed to keep doing the same things, right? Keep masking, keep staying away, uh, no matter what variant you're dealing with, and, and try not to catch it, and then wait until you can get in line for that vaccine. Yeah, and I don't think that anything changes with that. I mean, I think try not to catch it and try not to pass it on. That would be my uh, the key part. You know, it's it's about making sure that you're not you're not giving it to the elderly. Um, and I think 
Um, it doesn't change that that um, at all. Uh, I think the thing that that we have to be careful with, not so much in terms of the increased mortality, but with the increased transmission risk, is it makes the whole situation less stable. So the the virus will grow, and and outbreaks will grow quickly, and we need to be kind of ready to act quicker uh, when we see those outbreaks, uh, and potentially uh, more more. More, you know, more strictly, if you like. Dr. Robert Shallon, infectious disease modeler, University of Exeter in the UK, co-author of that new study. Doctor, thanks for coming on the show. The U.S. could soon be swimming in COVID vaccines. Today's shortages could be tomorrow's surpluses. Let's hope so. LJ Tan, chief strategy officer at the Immunization Action Network. So, LJ, what would the U.S. look like with a surplus maybe in a month? Yeah, I think isn't that great news? Uh, you know, so much vaccine in about a month. And I think what we'll see, obviously, is that we're going to see that flip in the vaccine supply demand, uh, demand uh, supply curve. I think we're going to have more vaccines than potentially we'll have demand for. Um, and so I think what we'll have to start figuring out is, you know, if everybody can get a vaccine, how do we make sure that everybody who can get a vaccine actually does get vaccinated, right? Because as you, I heard earlier in, the, uh, in your show, you, you had Dr. Fauci talking about herd immunity. But to get there, we need to get people vaccinated. And I think one of the things we want to think about is that, you know, the first doses of vaccine went out to all the high-risk elderly folks, you know, the people who really were going to get vaccinated. These people are the ones that want to get vaccinated. Now that we've got more supply, the population that's left that we need to vaccinate are actually the ones that are probably going to be a little bit more of the let's wait and see type people, right? So we need to help figure out how to get them in. And I think we need to things to, you know, inform them about, you know, when you get vaccinated, you can start maybe traveling. When you get vaccinated, you can hang out without masks, without social distancing with other people who are vaccinated. I think we need to, to start emphasizing that. And, of course, those nasty, testy variants are still around. And we need to tell people, you're also helping us all out if you get vaccinated because you don't give those viruses a chance to mutate and become those variants that we're so worried about. Yeah, so, so I, I think I think we've got a challenge coming up. So work on the messaging, number one. Two, they're, they're making moves for, for more equitable distribution, and we hear about those here in California. Then there's the third question from a lot of people, which is, hey, why don't we just, if we can get to this point, no, you know, next month of having a whole bunch of vaccine, why don't we just get rid of all the tears and everything and just throw open the gates and let people who want to go get them go and get them because every shot in an arm is a good shot in an arm. I, I totally support that idea. I think if you live, I think this will have to be done at a state by state, regional community level. If you've got enough vaccines uh, next month uh, in your community, I strongly support the idea of getting of just anybody who wants to get vaccinated, please get vaccinated. Because I think even with the, the vulnerable populations, if someone around them got vaccinated, the data now is becoming clearer and clearer that it does it does reduce transmission. I think we can now, you know, start talking about, you know, it will still protect those vulnerable people if you get vaccinated and you're not in the so-called tier 1A, 1B, or 1C. Well, I support that. I think that's a great idea. Well, I was going to say, I mean, the whole notion of these tiers, I mean, that came about only because of initially the scarcity of a vaccine. I mean, we don't have tears for flu shots, right? It's whenever you want to get a flu shot or your doctor tells you to get one, you go and you get it. Exactly. 
And in fact, when we've had flu vaccine shortages, that's when we've actually come back to the tears again. So you're so right. I mean, I think, I think that has to be decided, I think, at a state and a community level. You've got to make sure you've got vaccines. And then if you've got vaccines, uh, absolutely, I think you want to vaccinate all comers. So what happened to get us here? Did they crank up the manufacturing? I mean, the president yeah. today saying we bought more, but it's going to take time to, to get them here. But for so long, it was like, well, oh, man, this is going to take months. And now it's suddenly like, oh, maybe it won't. Yeah, so I think, you know, not just in terms of cranking out manufacturing, but I think supplies to create the vaccine became more available. And I think, importantly, I think the manufacturers became more efficient, right? So, so these, especially the mRNA vaccines, you know, those are newer vaccine technologies. So ramping up to make millions and millions of doses was not something they've done before in the past. I mean, flu vaccine, hey, we've got that one because we do that every year, right, 170 million doses. mRNA vaccines, this adenovirus vaccine vaccines, not yet. This is, these are new platforms. But I think what we're seeing is experience and, and, and operationalization uh, that is getting more and more efficient. And as a result, we're seeing more doses being cranked out in the same amount of time when, uh, you know, that's where we're getting less doses than maybe three months ago. But I think we're getting that, that operational efficiency now, which is awesome. All right. Dr. LJ Tan, Chief Strategy Officer, the Immunization Action Network. Coming up after this short break, the flu has basically vanished. But will it come back? Health experts in the fall worried about a winter twindemic of COVID and the flu, but it never happened. The flu basically vanished. Nobody's complaining because who misses it? KYW's Matt Leon talked with Dr. Marianne Loletta, who specializes in taking care of elderly patients in New Jersey, asked about the virtual disappearance of the flu. We're seeing, you know, unprecedented low values in flu activity, which I am not sure that any of us expect it. Uh, we are happy about it, um, but still unsure of what that may mean for future uh, seasons coming forward. How about other viruses and, su- and sicknesses that are usually a problem through the fall and winter? Similar situation? Similar situation, RSV, parainfluenza, a common cold. Um, rhinovirus has been the only one that we've seen increased activity. Um, but for the majority of the others, we've seen that the rates have been decreased, which we are attributing to the COVID-19 measures that have been put in place. Yeah, that to my point, I, I don't know why it never really occurred to me that they just wearing a mask, keeping distance would be just as effective. I guess it's sort of like you're so kind of uh, wired to worry about the worst case scenario and then it comes out the other way do you is it all of the things in concert mask wearing you know enhanced hand or not enhanced hand but more consistent hand washing keeping your distance you think all of them or is there one that really you think has affected the flu and stuff um i i think it's multifactorial I do believe that the masks and the hand washing are a big factor as well as the social distancing. However, there are other factors at play and, you know, we'll never know which one had the greatest impact because I don't know that anyone has done those studies. Um, You know, remote work, schools being closed, decreased global travel, decreased capacity in places where people do gather. So there there are so many things, you know, we kind of threw everything at this COVID-19 disease state and um, are seeing now that it has had what we believe to be benefit for the transmission of other disease states as well. Do you remember when you first, the moment when you first started to kind of 
put together in your mind that, hey, you know what? Usually by now I've seen X amount of cases of the flu, and now I don't I don't think I've seen anyone or anything like that. Do you remember the moment kind of recognition? Absolutely. Yeah, it was probably, you know, close to the second to last week in December, thinking this is unusually quiet, um, you know, and then just wondering, is it that the patients aren't getting tested for the flu? Um, but, you know, looking through charts, we're seeing that if, if patients were tested for COVID and were negative, there was a follow-up test done to also check for influenza to see if that was present. So um, I really don't believe that uh, the low flu rates are reflective of lack of testing. And I'll, I'll say that based on some evidence, when we look at the percent of tests that are coming back positive this flu season, 2020 to 2021, compared to prior seasons, I mean, right now, the cumulative percent positive rate of all tests performed is about 0.2%. When you look at the prior three flu seasons, uh, those percent positives were in the 20 to 30% range. So, you know, of the tests being done, much less are coming back positive. And, and, and we're doing tests because we have a high index of suspicion. We're not just doing the tests to do them. I know your, your, your specialty of care is with the elderly population. How big is this for that group to not have the flu? In, I mean, COVID's a different, a separate argument, but to not have the flu in play, how huge is that? Huge. I mean, we were all fearful of these double infections and, you know, what what will that look like in our patients who are frail and have, you know, chronic lung disease and are on oxygen and heart failure. Um, we, I mean, I have to be honest with you, it was one of the scariest times in my professional life, especially because all of my patients fall into the high risk category, right? So I, I've been on high alert. Uh, we're very fortunate that we've seen decreased activity of flu. Obviously, you know, COVID has still been quite prevalent. In my particular program, we've been extremely fortunate in terms of having lower infection rates and very low um, rates of other, you know, more serious um, effects of the COVID. And, and I do think it's because of all of the factors at play and all of the precaution measures we put in place. You know, our, our patients um, in my program are more community-based, so they're really not um, nursing home uh, patients. They can qualify, but our job living independently for elders is to keep them in the community. So having them in the community more um, separated from the general population and having providers interacting with them with protective equipment on in a proper way has really kept them safe and healthy. And I'm proud of that. Wasted vaccine doses are a lost opportunity to get shots into arms at a quicker pace, but a new website is looking to change that. Dr. B will connect people, anyone, with vaccine doses that have gone unused that are in jeopardy of being tossed. You sign up and then it's basically a standby list. They text you. They say, can you make it over here in two hours? We got a dose for you. Dr. Shika Jane, co-founder of the COVID advocacy group Impacts, Dr. John Brownstein, Chief Innovation Officer, Boston Children's Hospital. He has the site vaccinefinder.org. He's the operator of that. Uh, Dr. Jane, how do we feel about this? Uh, shots in arms and instead of the trash can, that's a good thing. 
Absolutely. It's definitely a good thing. We don't want to be throwing away these very precious shots. And it sounds like they're trying to do it in an equitable way as well, which I think is important. We know that up until now, people have been searching the pharmacies. We're seeing people in grocery stores who are getting approached when there's extra shots where the pharmacist comes up and says, hey, do you want a vaccine today? Because we're going to throw them away otherwise. So this seems like hopefully if it works out well, it seems like it's going to be a more organized way to potentially get these extra shots into arms and hopefully also do it in a way that's more equitable than just finding everybody on the street or in the grocery store who might be waiting to get one. Although, I, you know, I kind of wonder uh, the long-term potential, and by that I mean a few months, of this kind of model because in our last segment we were talking uh, with someone, another doctor was talking about how in the next month or so we may actually find ourselves in a situation where we have a surplus of all these vaccines, more vaccines than there are people at the moment willing to get vaccinated. So it sounds like in a very short amount of time, there won't be a need to do any of this. Well, I will tell you what I found over this pandemic is a lot of groups have found, have started doing work that eventually needs to pivot into other work. I think with this pandemic and with everything we've seen over the last year, there's been a lot of innovation that's come out and people have started with one plan and they've utilized that plan for the amount of time that it's needed. And then when another need comes up, they use the infrastructure they already have in place to pivot to another need. So I can imagine with Dr. B, especially and other groups like it, they'll have the infrastructure to help initially with finding these people who need the vaccines and getting them into the arms. And then when we have a surplus, I can imagine they're going to find other ways to utilize the infrastructure that they've set up to help people in other ways. Dr. Brownstein, um, thanks for joining us. Why is it up to, to, to you guys and not the government to figure this one out for us? I'm actually on, on your thing, Vaccine Finder, right now, and I put in my zip, and it looks like, you know, my Ralphs may have some doses and, and, even, and even my CVS. I don't qualify yet, but if I did, that's how I go. But, you know, it shouldn't have been up to, to you to, to, to do this for me. Well, okay, so let's take a step back here. Actually, so I Vaccine Finder. Uh, it was actually developed during the H1N1 pandemic in partnership with Google. But in fact, CDC has been our partner uh, around Vaccine Finder for, for many years. And in fact, we've been working with CDC, Operation Warp Speed, the White House to launch Vaccine Finder. It's a really interesting sort of government, public, private partnership to, to build technology really quickly to serve our understanding of where vaccines are in the community. We actually, every provider of COVID vaccine has to register with us and provide their daily inventory. And from there, we can create a website, people put their zip code, they can figure out where vaccines are. And in fact, we're getting millions of users uh, coming to the site and actually finding vaccines. So it's trying to make it as easy as possible for people, but you know, the government can't do it alone. And this is why you know, we exist, but then also we're funneling our data via Google Maps, Waze, Facebook, all the various sites. So essentially anybody goes to a website looking for vaccine, they can see sort of a source of truth of where vaccine is in their community. Okay, well, I will temper my anger because this is very, very easy. <laughs> <laughs> There's little dots everywhere and I can click on them. So, Is, is there, though, uh, an issue, uh, uh, we'll start with Dr. Jane in this one, um, with the amount of data that some of these, like, for example, Dr. B, uh, I'm not quite sure that the data that's entered in there would be protected by uh, HEPA and all these other uh, uh, things that are, are in place to keep people's uh, medical information uh, confidential. Is that a potential issue? 
So I think it's definitely a potential issue. The hope is that they figured out ways to protect people as much as they can. I don't think that it's going to be as high a level of protection as things like HIPAA. But as you mentioned earlier, there's Facebook groups that are popping up. There's all sorts of scams that are happening where people are giving their social security numbers or their phone numbers and even more protected data to random strangers because they're desperate to get a vaccine. So my hope is that sites like this have some protections in place so that people can avoid scammers and avoid other people who are going to try to take advantage of them. But again, the protections are not going to be as high as they are, for example, looking at a medical chart in the hospital. So that is something to think about. But my hope is that vaccine, vaccine hunter sites like Dr. B will have some level of protection to protect some of the information, but probably not all of it as much as you would in an official hospital sense. Dr. Brownstein, back to you. A place for services like this, especially if, if the equity is kind of built in. It's not, you know, a 20-year-old driving to each pharmacy every day to try and see if he or she can snag one. They're going to text the 55-year-old first to who's closer to the age group that's supposed to be going right now and say, hey, can, can you be here in a couple hours? We've got this shot for you. Yeah, I, I mean, listen, I think that it's a great innovative idea. I actually know the founders. They're, they're doing something that I, they're serving in need. I'll just say, I mean, that is one issue, and this is probably in the thousands of doses. We really have to be thinking about the millions of doses that are being deployed weekly where the existing infrastructure needs to be supporting people better, right? The, the, the refreshing of websites, the eligibility tools, the appointment schedule. I know here in Massachusetts, they their, their website had a a wait time of uh, 90,000 uh, minutes to get served. It, the infrastructure that public health departments are putting out there are just, it doesn't meet the sort of the demands of the consumer. And so my hope is with some of the tools uh, that are coming out like Vaccine Finder, we're trying to uh, create a little bit of organization and, and reduce the frustration. Yes, at the end of the day, we might have uh, unused doses. Dr. B would be completely appropriate for that. But we also need to like fix the top end of this problem because it's, it's becoming really something that people can't stand for anymore. Yeah, there's like a million people signed up for Dr. B and they're not yeah. a million extra doses. You're going to no. get your shot from the regular place before they text you. Uh, Dr. John Brownstein, Chief Innovation Officer, Boston Children's Hospital and operator of the site vaccinefinder.org and Dr. Sheikha Jain, oncologist, professor of medicine, University of Illinois at Chicago. Spring is almost here and that means warmer weather. It also means the return of seasonal allergies. Now, that's not good when it comes to COVID. A new study from scientists in Germany finds that exposure to pollen enhances a person's susceptibility to respiratory viral infections, which, by the way, includes COVID. They noted a 10 to 30% increase in infection rates of COVID when pollen levels were higher. They say it might be because higher pollen concentrations lead to a weaker immune response in airways where viruses land. We're on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.